For those of you that are guests with us, my name is Robert. I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Hill. So glad to see you. Um, it was just this past fall, a few months ago really, um, that my wife Erin and I celebrated our 10-year wedding anniversary. Um, yeah, very cool. Um, uh, but to be very honest, um, it wasn't very long into our marriage, uh, maybe just a year or two, uh, that we thought that our time together would get cut short. Um, we lived uh, in a great part of the city in a great old renovated house, uh, in a great renovated block up in the hill. Um, in a matter of about nine months, we were broken into seven times. Um, and six of those times, by the grace of God, we weren't home. Uh, one of those times we were. Um, and I will never forget that night and what went on. Um, we had been broken into already, I think, four times at this point. Uh, first time we were broken into, we were gone. They wiped out everything in the house. And I don't know what you have or want to break into a newlywed couple's house for. Uh, we did not have anything. Um, but they broke in. They took everything that we had. Um, and so we had been through the drill. Uh, we had the alarms. We had the whole thing. But this particular night, we were asleep. And about one o'clock in the morning, uh, we were awakened by just, I mean, the only way I can describe it is just an explosion. Um, it just sounded like the loudest crash I've ever heard in my life. And we immediately jumped into action. We had a drill. We knew what to do. Uh, Aaron jumped up, put a robe on, called the police. I jumped up. I keep clothes by the bed with a bat. And uh, I put on my jeans. Uh, my black sweatshirt, and for some reason, my black hat, um, <laughs> which wasn't really the wisest choice of outfit. And I don't really know why I had to put a hat on, but um, any of you ladies who have been married for a long time know that you know our one sticky point is our hair. So um, I put my hat on, grabbed the bat, Aaron called the police, alarms just blaring, and we had put this huge megawattage amplifier on our alarm after the second break-in, and you could hear, if you're familiar with the city, you could hear our alarm from the top of Church Hill down at the McDonald's at the bottom of the hill on a cold night. It was extremely loud. And in those old houses of plaster and hardwood and huge ceilings, it was just reverberating all over the house. And so we jump up, we spring into action, and we go. And um, I take my place at the door. Now, we lived in a two-story like if you're familiar with the hill, kind of shotgun Victorian home. So we lived downstairs actually in the middle parlor. Uh, Aaron's company was upstairs on the top floor. So we lived downstairs. So you walk in and you had a front parlor with sliding pocket doors to the middle parlor and a hallway on the outside. And so we had two sets of doors in our bedroom, the sliding ones that went to the front room and the hallway one that went straight out to the hall. And so I took my place at the hallway door with the bat um, and you know, if you've ever been in scenarios like this, or if you haven't, if you're a guy, you've dreamed of scenarios like this and exactly what you're going to do when it happens. Um, and, and I was no different for all of what was probably a literal 45 seconds, but felt like a couple of minutes. I dreamed up every way in which I could get out of that room, sneak around, find this person and hit them with my bat um, and thus save myself and my wife. Um, I chose in the moment, very consciously, not to put shoes on, left my socks on, because in the hardwood floor, I thought I could sneak around more quietly, and I could sneak up on them. And so all of a sudden, I remember standing at the hallway door thinking, you know what, if I slide through the pocket doors, 
through the front parlor around, I might be able to sneak up on this person because our natural assumption with the explosion was that they were, came in upstairs because the last two break-ins, they broke in our window upstairs and came in and worked their way through. So I naturally thought, if I go this way, I've got them. And so as I'm standing by the door, Aaron's on the phone with the police, probably two minute and a half probably has really gone by, literally. She tells me, because if you've ever lived in the hill, you know that they're police are generally quick to respond to this kind of stuff, that the police are approaching the house. And I'm at the door, I'm plotting my scheme, and all of a sudden, just before I could even think, outside the hallway door, I see a shadow. Lights kind of scurrying, but a shadow cast right in front of the door that just stopped. And I knew it was the moment of truth. And I promise you, at that moment, the one thing I wanted to do was go hide under the bed. There was nothing heroic about me in that moment. But I knew it was the moment of truth. And my wife's over here, we're in the house, somebody's here, he's outside the door, I've got to do something. Aaron's on the phone, she says the police are approaching the house, she sees the shadow, she sees my face, she sees me look back at the door with the bat, and she starts screaming, the police are here, the police are here, get out. Just get back out of the house. This person had to go out the way they came in because after the last break-in, we put these reverse double locks on the door that you could only lock from the inside. So there was no way without a key this person was gonna be able to get out one of our doors. So they had to go back out the way they came in, which we assume was through the window. And so she's yelling, the police are here, get out. I'm standing at the door. I look at her. I tell her I love her, and I open up the door. And I step out with the bat, pull it back to swing, and I met with these just blistering screams, get down, get down, get on the ground. There's a nine millimeter in my face. It was the police. (laughs) They had shown up on the scene and we come to find out that the person had approached our house and had kicked the back door so hard with a size 17 footprint, we found out, that the frame literally came out of the plaster and it was still locked and deadbolted in our kitchen floor. And he had walked in as far as our bedroom door when the alarm went off and he turned around and went back out. So the police came into the house through the hole that he had kicked into the back of our house. And I tell you this story not just because I'm at a loss for things to say, but um, <laughs> I tell you this story to just point out the, make the point that most often the reality behind the shadows that we see in so many things is usually so much better and so much greater. I don't know if you've ever had a moment when the shadow of something gave way to the reality and you felt the joy and the relief at finally understanding what it was that was casting that shadow. That's what happened to me in that moment when the shadow that I saw underneath that door gave way to the reality. And it wasn't somebody on the other end trying to take my life from me, but someone trying to actually help me and rescue me, and by God's grace, not taking my life from me as I stood there in a black shirt and a black hat with a baseball bat with a woman in the corner on the phone for a home invasion call. Um, Not my brightest of moments. You see, the essence of the Advent season is the longing for the shadows to give way to the reality. 
for the shadows to be replaced by the reality. Something much better than the shadow is coming. There's something much better behind the shadow that's casting this shadow over the life of God's people. And what we're looking at during this Advent season is this longing of God's people for the fulfillment of what God had given them in the Old Testament, in particular in the law, in the life of the tabernacle, in the process of the sacrifices, in the role of the priest, in the giving of the law itself, all shadows pointing to a greater reality and all shadows that were given to God's people, not only to order the life of God's people, but to cultivate in God's people an ongoing hope and a longing for those shadows to finally give way to the reality. And so what we've done so far in the last couple of weeks is look at a few of these institutions. And we've looked at the tabernacle, we've looked at the sacrifices, and this morning we're gonna look at the Old Testament Levitical priesthood. And we're going to hopefully see as we go through this that God gave these things not only to help the people of Israel, not only to give them what they needed to be in this time, who God was calling them to be, but like I've already said, to cultivate in them a longing, a longing for something more, a recognition that this couldn't be all that there was. It was God's presence always going to be with them in a cloud and a fire. He wanted to dwell with us, we've seen. He wanted to dwell amongst his people. He wanted to not be far and distant in a way. He wanted to be in the midst of his people, but is it always gonna be in a fire? Is it always gonna be in a cloud? Or are we always gonna be able to stay far back from it and never actually get into his presence ourselves? Are we always gonna need something to go between us, something to sacrifice, to cleanse us, someone to go in our place into the presence of God? Is this all there really is? Or is this going to give way to something more? And so this morning, I want us to take a a look with the time that we've got at the priesthood. What did it communicate to God's people? What did it communicate to the priests? And what did it cultivate, most importantly, in the hearts of God's people, including the priests themselves? And how, in a sense, is this priesthood just a shadow of the reality that's cast back over the life of God's people, a shadow of the reality that's fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus himself? So if you've got your Bibles, open them up to the book of Leviticus, chapter eight. I made my pitch for Adventicus 2012 to spend the Advent season in the book of Leviticus, and I, I think I managed to win. So we're gonna spend Advent in Leviticus, and I know God's word does only what God's word can do because more of you have showed up to hear more about Leviticus this morning. Um, so if you can make it all the way through the tabernacle and the sacrifices, I know God's word is doing what it can only do. Leviticus chapter eight, we're gonna start looking at this order of the priesthood. And I want you to listen to a little bit of what John Calvin had to say uh, about these priests. Calvin said the foreshadowing ceremony of the law, talking about all that we looked at last week with the sacrifices, all the ceremony that God had put in place revolving these sacrifices that deal with the people's need for atonement, to deal with the people's need to be made at right, at one with God, to deal with the, pe- the reality that sin had separated them from God. And there was this great chasm between them. And because of their sin, they couldn't dwell in the presence of God. And God couldn't dwell in the presence of their sin without destroying them in their holiness. That something needed to be done about their sin. And we looked at that in the sacrifices last week. And Calvin said that this foreshadowing ceremony of the law taught us that we are all barred from God's presence. We're all barred from God's presence. Because of our sin and because of God's holiness, we can't just presumptuously enter the presence of God and not expect to be destroyed in his holiness. Calvin said God's ceremony in the law has taught all of his people that. And consequently, he said, we need a mediator. 
We need someone who should appear in our name, who shall bear us upon his shoulders and hold us bound upon his chest so that we shall be heard by the Almighty God. And this is the primary role of the Levitical priests, to be mediators for God's people. And so if you've got your Bibles open to Leviticus chapter eight, I'm gonna give you a little background on the priest as we get in there and what Leviticus chapter eight is all about. So you don't have to turn here, I'll read it for you, but back in Exodus chapter 28, we actually see God giving instructions to Moses about these priests. So while Moses is on the mountain with God and we spend a couple of weeks there and God gives him the instructions uh, for the law, the covenant, renewal, the commandments, gives them the instructions for the tabernacle to build that he will dwell in, that will be in the midst of the people. He also gives him these instructions for these priests and in Exodus chapter 28 verse 1 God says this to Moses he says bring near to you Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests Aaron and Aaron's sons Nadab and Abihu Eleazar and Ithamar and here's what you need to see just the reason why I'm showing you this really quickly before we jump into Leviticus chapter 8 is that the priesthood the role of a priest, a Levitical priest or the high priest that Aaron assumes here in the beginning that God puts him in, it's not an office that any man had to earn his way into, chose to aspire to. There were no spiritual gifts tests in the time of the Israelites that they took and it said, oh, you should be a priest. And therefore he jumped into the path to become a priest. The role of the priesthood was divinely chosen by God. God decided who would be the priests in Israel. And in God's gracious election, he chose the tribe of Levi to serve in this period in time in the life of Israel as his priests. Being a priest of God in the Levitical order, being a high priest or being a priest had nothing to do with a man's natural ability. There was nothing about the man that accommodated him to this role or that made him uh, ready for this role. Being a priest according to the order that God has laid out here in his law had everything to do with God's grace and God's choosing of him and where he came from. So no man aspired to this. In fact, when we get into the book of Numbers, we'll read a couple of stories about people who did aspire to become priests and what happened to them. In particular, you can make note of a man named Korah who desired to to be God's high priest. And we'll read a little bit about Korah and what happened to Korah and his desires. The first thing you need to see is that God actually calls the priests. And God's calling of the priests has nothing to do with the man's abilities, but everything to do with God's grace. And not only were these priests to be mediators between God and man, not only were they to be the mediators between man in his sin and God in his holiness who would go into the presence of God on our behalf, there was another job that the priests had in particular that you don't hear much about. I just want to introduce you to it real quick because we won't spend a lot of time on it. It's in Leviticus chapter 10. You don't have to turn there. I'll, I'll read it to you. But Leviticus 10, 10 says this. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean. And here's the thing, verse 11. You are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. The priests were mediators and the priests were teachers. In fact, if you think about the number of people in Israel and the geography that the people of Israel took up around the tabernacle as the tabernacle moved ultimately into the temple period, and the reality of it is most historians and scholars think that the majority of the priests in the Levitical priesthood were actually teachers. And more priests, it would take more priests to teach the people of Israel the word of God than it would take to do what they needed to do in the temple or in the tabernacle. There was only one altar. There weren't a series of altars in the tabernacle as we looked at a couple of weeks ago on which to make these sacrifices. There was only one. 
And so it wouldn't take all these priests to do the work in the tabernacle. The majority of them were actually teachers. And so the role of the priests were to be mediators and to be teachers. And the priests, who they were, they were chosen by God's grace. God set them apart for this service. It had nothing to do with who they were. And that's a, just a little bit of background for you. I, I wish, I'll, I'll give you a little bit of homework you can do with your communities. If you want to trace the origin of, of the Levitical priesthood, go back together and look at the story of the tribe of Levi. It's a really curious story. Any of you who, who remember, have been reading through the Bible, you remember Levi and, and his role and, and how he avenged his sister's dishonor with the Shechemites. How his dad cursed him in the midst of blessing because of that. And how in Israel's rebellion or in Israel's disobedience to God, while Moses was on the mountain and they were making the golden calf, God called together, who, who is with me? Who is by my side? Who is zealous for my holiness? And it was the tribe of Levi that showed up. And he gave them a particular command. And they obeyed that command. And because of their obedience to that command and loving God's holiness more than their own life and the life of their own family, God set them apart to be priests. Go back and read the story. It's really interesting. Because when you go forward to read a little bit more in Numbers about how the people of God would move and the tabernacle would travel and you learn a little bit in Numbers about how the people arranged themselves according to God's directions around the tabernacle, you'll find these Levites, these same ones who were zealous for God's holiness, these same ones who were mighty with the sword are the ones who actually surround the tabernacle and ascent as the bodyguards of the tabernacle. They were the last line for anybody who wanted to get in. Gives you a new perspective on a priest. Um, but go back and do that. I wish we had time to, we don't have time to get into all that. I gave, you, I gave a lot of it away right there. But go, go study that. It's good. Now that you've got Leviticus chapter 8 open, what you're going to see in Leviticus chapter 8, 9, and 10 is the fulfillment of what God told Moses in Exodus chapter 28 and 29. In particular, you're going to see in Leviticus chapter 8, where we'll spend the most time, the ordination ceremony of Aaron as the high priest and his sons the priests. In chapter 9, you're going to see the first worship service in Israel, the first time that Aaron and his sons actually perform the role of priests. Up until here, Moses is the one who's interceding for them as the priest. Moses is the one who's doing the priestly work on their behalf. But in chapter 9, you're going to see the first worship service in the life of Israel. Chapter 10, we'll introduce the one of the two narrative stories in Leviticus and what difference that plays in helping us see what this cultivated in people's hearts. So Leviticus chapter 8, you're getting the ordination ceremony. By God's grace, we hope to ordain more pastors this next year. This isn't going to be our template, but here's what you'll see. Leviticus chapter 8, verse 1 through 4. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, take Aaron and his sons with him and the garments and the anointing oil and the bull of the sin offering and the two rams and the basket of unleavened bread and assemble all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him. And the congregation was assembled at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Back in Exodus 28, God gave Moses the instructions about these bulls and these rams and these bread and this oil and told him to gather all these things. Now he's telling him to take all these things and gather all the people of Israel the entire congregation, what's about to happen is going to be a public spectacle. Nothing going on in private, nothing going on behind closed doors. Everything in front of the eyes of God's people is going to be a public ordination ceremony. Verse 5, Moses said to the congregation, this is the thing the Lord has commanded to be done. And Moses brought Aaron and his sons and he washed them with water and he put the coat on him and he tied the sash around his waist and he clothed them with the robe and put the ephod on him and tied the skillfully woven band of the ephod around him, binding it to him with the band and he placed the breast piece on him and in the breast piece he put the urim and the thummim and he set the turban on his head and on the turban in front he set the golden plate, the holy crown, as the Lord had commanded Moses. What do we see here in the beginning? Before the priest could be clothed, 
in their priestly garments that God had given Moses the instructions for back in Exodus chapter 28 and enter into the presence of God on behalf of the people as mediators, they had to be consecrated for service by being washed and cleansed. Before they could be clothed in God's holy garments for service, they themselves had to be washed and cleansed. They needed to be purified from the defilement and the stain of their own sin. And God was setting apart Aaron and setting apart his sons for particular service in the life of his people, but they were sinners too. And much of what we'll see in this ceremony, much of what we'll see cultivated in the hearts of God's people through this ceremony was designed by God to be a constant reminder of this very reality to the priests and to the people. Now once they were washed, once they were cleansed, they were then dressed in their priestly robes. Now back in Exodus chapter 28, verse two, God says this to Moses, I'll read it to you. He says, you shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother, for glory and for beauty. Aaron, the high priest, He's gonna wear distinct and particular clothes. His sons, the rest of the priests, they're gonna wear distinct and particular clothes as well, but Aaron's are gonna be even more distinct. They're gonna be even more particular. In fact, they're gonna be holy. They're gonna be glorious. They're gonna be beautiful. The holiness of his clothes were there to, to designate and declare that he had been set apart by God for his particular role as the high priest. The glory of his garments was was there to communicate and to remind him and to remind the people of the weightiness reflected in the the role of the priestly office, the gravity of who who he was and what he was doing, and the beauty was there to reflect the splendor of the God who had called him, the God into whom presence he was going, the God whom had created all things and was now dwelling in the midst of his people. I'll tell you a little bit about these clothes because they're fascinating. I wish I had some really good pictures to put up there, but most of the ones you find, they're just kind of silly looking. But uh, you have to close your eyes. I'll, I'll describe them to you, and if you have a good imagination, you'll be able to catch these things, and maybe I can do a good job of describing them to you. But you find the instructions for them and the descriptions back in Exodus chapter 28 and 29, but I'll just kind of give you a bit of the picture. The high priest wore a robe made of blue or, or violet cloth, very expensive cloth to get, very rare cloth to get. It wasn't a common thing to wear blue or to wear purple or violet. It was a seamless garment that went under the ephod, and we'll talk about that in a minute, and it hung down to about the knees, maybe a little bit past the knees. And on the bottom of that robe, there was fringe, and on that fringe were tied golden bells and pomegranates. And those are going to come into play more next week when we look at Leviticus chapter 16, but those were there to let you know where the priest was and what he was doing, particularly on the Day of Atonement when he would go into the Holy of Holies on behalf of the people where we'll find next week that they actually tie a rope around him because he was entering the very presence of God in the Holy of Holies and if he did something that was not pleasing to God or God did not accept the sacrifice on behalf of the people, the high priest would die on the spot. They would hear jingle, 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 thud. But nobody could go in. So they tied a rope on him so they could pull him back out whole new meaning to jingle bells this season, but we'll, 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 we'll deal with that next week when we get into Leviticus chapter 16. Uh, underneath that robe, or on top of that robe, excuse me, he wore an ephod, which is a funny name, but it was like a long sleeveless um, apron uh, that, was, that was made of linen, and it had two straps that went over his shoulders, and two semi-precious stones were mounted on the, on the shoulder straps, and on those semi-precious stones were engraven the 12 names of the tribes of Israel. And so it was as if, as Calvin said, the priest lifted the people of God, the 
12 tribes of Israel onto his shoulders and he carried them into the presence of God as he did his work. And attached to that ephod by braided golden chains was the breastpiece made of a fabric with 12 not semi-precious but precious stones that were mounted on it, one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. If you imagine that breastpiece over the ephod, which is on top of the robe, you could see those precious stones now basically covering and surrounding the priest's heart, just as Calvin had said, one who not only bore their burdens on his shoulders, but carried them close and dear to his heart. And so if you were an Israelite in those days, when you saw the name of your tribe inscribed on those stones on the high priest's garment, you could be sure that he carried out his work before God in their tabernacle on your behalf. He was going in your place. He was thinking of you, carrying you on his shoulders and near to his heart. He wore a turban of fine linen with a gold plate attached to the front that was engraved with the words, holy to the Lord. And this was there to declare that he and the people he represented before God were set apart by God to be a holy people, to be a holy nation. Look down at verse 10, chapter eight. We gotta keep going. Washed him, clothed him. Then Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it and consecrated them. And he sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times and anointed the altar and all of its utensils and the basin and its stand to consecrate them. And he, he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and he anointed him to consecrate him. And Moses brought Aaron's sons and clothed them with coats and tied sashes around their waist and bound caps on them as the Lord had commanded. So once they were washed, purified, and clothed, they were then anointed with a special oil blend, a blend just prepared for this moment, never to be used again in another ceremony other than putting in a new high priest in place when the previous one had died. This throughout scriptures is a visual representation of the empowering of the Holy Spirit for the very service that God had called them into. And so you just have to get a picture. We can't spend too much time on it, but you gotta get a picture of this consecration ordination ceremony. All the people of Israel, some 600,000 plus people gathered together. How they do this in front of all those people, we don't know. Some people think maybe just the heads of the tribes came as representatives for the rest. I don't know, but there's a crowd. It's in public. And Aaron and his sons are washed and they're cleansed because they're defiled. They're clothed in holy and glorious and beautiful robes because of the calling God's given them and the people of God are placed on their shoulders and on their hearts and they're crowned with this turban and this plate reminding them of the holiness that God has called them to. They're anointed then with oil. All in front of the people. It's quite a a regal ceremony, isn't it? I mean, it's quite the picture. It's quite the thing going on but there's still one big issue to deal with. I mean, on the outside, they look great. On the outside, they look glorious. They look holy. They look beautiful. All is well with the priests. But the reality of it is, their inward condition stands in stark contrast to their outward condition. Though they may look holy and righteous and glorious on the outside, they were still sinful and defiled on the inside impure in heart. So that's gotta get dealt with. Before they can actually enter the holy place on behalf of the people, before they can enter into the presence of God as mediators for the people, they have to offer sacrifices for their own sin. 
And so God, back in Exodus, ordained a series of sacrifices. And we looked at sacrifices last week, so you'll, make, you'll be able to understand much of what's going on now. God ordained sacrifices specifically for the priests to have offered on their behalf for their sin in a ceremonial process before they could ever go into the tabernacle and offer the first sacrifice on behalf of any one of God's people. Their heart has to be dealt with. And so you see in Exodus chapter 29, God giving all these sacrifices that the priests have to have made for their sin in this ceremony. And here in chapter eight of Leviticus, you see it actually happening just as the Lord commanded. So in verse 14, let's look at this. Let me pull this out. I'll just read it to you and run through it with you. In verse 14, you see that they brought the bull of the sin offering and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the bull of the sin offering. So they offered a sin offering, which represented, as we saw last week, their need for atonement. Their need for being made at one with God. That sin is separated from them and they need to be made right with God. But a sacrifice had to be made in their place because of their sin. So you see them doing just as God commanded. Then in chapter verse 18, you see they presented the ram of the burnt offering. And Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram. So they had a burnt offering, which represented their whole consecration, their whole self being totally dedicated, totally consecrated to God. And you see that that sacrifice, just as we saw last week, was a pleasing aroma to God. Then you get verse 22. They presented the other ram, the ram of ordination. And Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram. So now they had this ram of ordination. Now this wasn't a sacrifice we saw last week. This was particular to what was going on here in setting them apart and ordaining them for the service that God has called them to. And there's something particular that happens in this one that always is a bit cheeky. We we read this and people read this and you're like, what's going on with that? Well, look at this, verse 22. He presented the ram, the ram of ordination. Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram and he killed it. Now listen to what Moses does. He took some of the blood and he put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear, on the thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot. Then he presented Aaron's sons and Moses put some of the blood on the lobes of their right ears, on the thumbs of their right hands, on the big toes of their right feet. And Moses threw blood against the side of the altar. What was going on with this funky dabbing of the blood on the ears and the thumbs and on the toes? One commentator in particular offered up this and I think it's probably the most helpful explanation. He said, it was put on the ear because the priest must at all times hearken to the holy voice of God. On his hands because he must execute God's commands, especially his priestly functions. And on his foot because he must walk rightly and holy. He used to hear God's words, do God's work, and walk in all of God's ways. And so you see this happening in this offering and you see them being consecrated to do those very things for in God's, in God's place as God's priests. Then you get to verse chapter 25 through 27 and you see this wave offering. So after they offer those bulls and offer those rams, Moses does something really funny. He takes the fat of that ram, he takes the liver, he takes the kidneys, he takes some of the bread and some of the oil and he puts it all together and he puts it into Aaron's hands and he puts it in the hands of Aaron's sons and he holds their hands up and he waves it as an offering before God. Now I I can only tell you again, read the Bible like a human. Fat, liver, kidneys, Bread and oil. So imagine what that felt like in your hands. I mean, and I don't mean to, to, to denigrate it, but it's like the soggiest like sub sandwich you've ever held in your hands. I mean, just, just squeezing that thing and, and waving it before the Lord. And Moses took it back. And he put it on the altar to be burnt with the burnt offering. And then in verse 30, you see one more thing happening for them. They see them being anointed by Moses again, but now this time with oil and blood from the altar. They'd already had oil poured on them, 
anointing them, symbolizing the empowering of the spirit for the service that God had called them to, but now he's anointing their clothes. He's anointing their clothes with oil, in particular blood from the altar. And he's doing this in a way of visually representing and saying that even your garments, everything about you, not just you, not just you Aaron, not just you the priest, but everything about you, including the garments that you wear, everything is now holy and sanctified and consecrated for my service alone. This is what it's for. It's totally set apart, totally dedicated to me. And then in verses 31 and 32, you see Aaron and his sons doing something that we saw a little bit about last week. They ate part of this ordination meal, sharing the remainder of the ram, the ram of ordination, the second ram, and then the final types of bread which have been put in the basket. You see them doing this now in a particular way. Listen to this, verse 33. You shall not go outside the tent, the entrance of the tent of meeting for seven days until the days of your ordination are completed. For it'll take seven days to ordain you. As has been done today, the Lord has commanded to be done to make atonement for you. At the entrance of the tent of meeting, you shall remain day and night for seven days, performing what the Lord has charged, so that you do not die. For so I have been commanded. This isn't a one and done ceremony. Hopefully the next time we ordain pastors here, we'll bring them up after you've had time to know them, we've had time to examine them, you've had time as members of this church to offer up any concerns or encouragements about them. We'll pray for them, we'll lay hands on them, they will be pastors in this church. This thing was seven days. Seven days of sacrifices. Seven days of eating. Seven days of taking what they couldn't finish out and burning it over and over and over again. You hear about it even more explicitly back in Exodus 29. Here, just just listen to this. Through seven days you shall ordain them. This is what God is giving Moses these instructions. And every day, listen to this, every day, all seven days, every day you shall offer a bull as a sin offering for atonement. Every day. And this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two lambs, a year old, day by day, regularly. One lamb you shall offer in the morning and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations. Now make note of that statement. We're coming back to that in a second. At the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak to you there. There I will meet with the people of Israel and it shall be sanctified for my glory. Now, quickly, because we have to move on, what implications can we take away from what we see in this relatively unique and, and somewhat to our 21st century senses bizarre ordination ceremony of Aaron and his sons as priests? Big thing, God intended for Aaron, for all the people, and for us where we are now to see this ceremony and to be reminded of the pervasiveness and the universality of sin. The depth of sin and the universality of sin. No one is excluded. And the requirement that God has for his people to enter into his presence, and that's holiness. Sin is pervasive, sin is universal, and holiness is required by God to enter into his presence. You see, do you think after doing this ceremony for seven days, again, now I gotta be human. We've read it, we've talked about it, we've pictured it, now now be human. Do you think if you were Aaron or any of his sons, you were going through this ceremony for seven days, Do you think the picture of your sin would begin to set in at all? You can't do what I'm calling you to do. I've got to wash you. I've got to clean you. I've got to clothe you. Now you've got to have sacrifices before you can even enter in my presence because you're so wicked. I mean, do you think after seven days before they're allowed to do what God has chosen them to do, they have to do all these sacrifices that the message would sit in? Your sin is deep. Your need is great. You in and of yourself, you can't do it. I mean, just think about Aaron. 
What must it have been like for Aaron for these seven days to cut these bulls' throats, to have these sacrifices made in his place for his sin, remembering that it wasn't too long ago. While Moses was on the mountain getting the very instructions that they're fulfilling, he was collecting gold at the bottom of the mountain from the people, fashioning it into a calf and telling the people, this is the God that led you out of Egypt. Now here he is called by God, just, we could preach a whole series on this one, God and how he chooses people for his work, calls Aaron to be the high priest. And here he is, daily reminded of his sin. You think the picture would have set in for Aaron? You think he would have thought seven days was a little long? Or you think he would have said, you know, I think we need another day. Uh, seven, we need eight, nine. I, I, do you think it meant something to him? I mean, God intended for his people, not only the priests, but all of his people, to see that sin is deep. Sin is pervasive. It is universal. And he requires holiness to enter into his presence. So do we understand and see the pervasiveness of our sin? Do we have a sense of it? There's a great professor named Cornelius Plantinga wrote a book called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. It's about the doctrine of sin, fantastic book. In it he said this, he said the awareness of sin, a a deep awareness of disobedience and painful confession of sin used to be our shadow. Christians hated sin, they feared it, they fled from it, they grieved over it. Some of our forefathers even agonized over their sin. A man who lost his temper might wonder if he could still go to Holy Communion. A woman who for years envied her more attractive and intelligent sister might wonder if this sin threatened her very salvation. He went on to say this, that shadow in the life of a Christian is dimmed. Nowadays, the accusation you have sinned is often said with a grin and with a tone that signals an inside joke. At one time, this accusation, here's the whole point, at one time, this accusation still had the power to jolt the people of God. God, help us to realize the pervasiveness and deadly nature of even the smallest, and as we saw last week, the most unintentional sin. God, help us to hate it. God, help us to recognize the shadow that apart from his grace we can't cast away. And help us to see as he was trying to help his people see that that sin deserves in his holiness infinite wrath. It has to be dealt with. Do you, you think they would have gotten the picture? I told you not to miss something. Back in Exodus, when he gave them the instructions for these seven days, he said something, he slipped in there that would have communicated this a little bit further, and I want you to see it. In in verse 42 in Exodus 29, God said, this sacrifice of these lambs in the morning and in the evening, he said it should be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations. You see, the heart of daily worship at the tabernacle was perpetual blood sacrifice every day and every night, regardless of what the people brought to the priests, every day and every night, part of the priest's responsibility was to sacrifice these lambs at the front of the tent of entrance of meeting as God had instructed. So imagine growing up every day and being around the tabernacle, seeing the daily activity of priests. Forget about the people bringing animals in, just seeing the daily activity of the priests at the entrance of the tent of meeting, daily slitting the throats of these lambs. Imagine what that picture would have impressed upon your mind and impressed upon your soul growing up. Sin is pervasive, sin is deep, sin has consequences and the consequence is ultimately death. And you couldn't miss the message. You couldn't miss it. 
that an innocent substitute had to be made. It was a necessary requirement for atonement. An innocent, innocent sacrifice was necessary for at one to be made, for one to be made one with God again. God wants his people, even the ordination of his priests, to see the depth of sin, the danger of sin, the sacrifice necessary to deal with the consequences of sin. All of this in chapter eight was to prepare them for chapter nine, which was the first worship service. It's launch day now for the worship in Tabernacle. We're a church plant. I remember launch day. I remember the first public service we had in here very well. The day before, I wasn't sacrificing lambs and bulls and reminding myself of my sin. I was at Target. My wife and I filled up like three shopping carts at Target of stuff we needed for kids and all that kind of stuff here. That morning, I was setting up chairs, printing bulletins, setting up screens, getting things ready to come in and, and to do what we were doing over there in the cafeteria. If you ever been in the cafeteria, the first day of worship's a little bit different for the people of Israel. Just as our ordination ceremonies are a bit different, their first day of public worship in the tabernacle is gonna be a bit different too. Look at chapter nine, verse one. On the eighth day, Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel, and he said to Aaron, take for yourself a bull calf for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering, both without blemish, and offer them before the Lord. And say to the people of Israel, take a male goat for a sin offering and a calf and a lamb, both a year old without blemish for a burnt offering, and an ox and a ram for peace offerings, to sacrifice before the Lord, and a grain offering mixed with oil, for today the Lord will appear to you. What a, what a statement. And they brought what Moses commanded in front of the tent of meeting and all the congregation drew near, all the people drew near and they stood before the Lord and Moses said this, this is the thing the Lord commanded you to do, that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. Then Moses said to Aaron, draw near to the altar and offer your sin offering and your burnt offering and make atonement for yourself and for the people and bring the offering to the people and make atonement for them as the Lord commanded. Now the priests are gonna begin to do their work. But don't miss, after seven days of purification, seven days of consecration, seven days of sacrifices, still on the first day of worship in the tabernacle, the first thing that Aaron has to do is offer up more animals as a sacrifice for atonement for his own sin. For his own sin. You are a sinner in need of a savior. Sin is pervasive, sin is deep. Your high priest your high priest, people. Listen, Israel, your high priest is a sinner. And he must offer sacrifices for himself. Sin is universal. No one, no one is immune from it. Don't miss in the very beginning, though. This is a wonderful part of this message. What kind of animal did God command Aaron to offer as a sacrifice for his sin? Told him to go get a bull calf. Only time you'll find that in the Old Testament. You won't find that animal reference to in the Old Testament anywhere else. You know what that was picturing? You know what I like to think, and a lot of commentators and pastors will, will say the same thing? This bull calf, God told Aaron to go get this because it wasn't too long ago he was making that golden calf down on the bottom of Sinai. And I honestly think this is God's way of letting Aaron know that's back there. That's done. It's, it's past. You're clean. You're clean. No one else has ever been asked by God or called by God in the Old Testament to offer this bull calf. And I think it was particular to Aaron because of that incident. And I think God was letting him know that it was all behind him. It was done. And so from there through verse 21, 
you see them doing exactly as God has commanded, offering the sacrifices that he called them to bring throughout this service. And you get to the end, chapter, verse 22. Listen to this service. Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and he blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting and when they came out, they blessed the people. And look at this. The glory of the Lord appeared to all the people fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering. Imagine that. Imagine seeing that. Fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. God with us. God has come to dwell in the midst of his people. The glory of the Lord has now appeared in the presence of his people. And what is their response? Shouts of joy. God has appeared. The glory of the Lord is there. And how the people respond is with joy and with fear. Joy and all. The two go hand in hand. In fact, it's honestly the all that produces much of the joy. It's the holiness and the mightiness and the glory and the weightiness of God that produces such joy at the idea that he would be merciful and come near. You see, what makes them so excited and so in awe and so overjoyed with the fact that God has come near is the fact that just who he is. I mean, what makes God, or I should say this, what makes where God is in this picture so amazing is who he is. What makes where he is amongst his people so, such an occasion of joy, is the reality of who he is. And I had to ask myself in thinking about me and thinking about us, does the glory of God and the presence of God cause us to shout with joy? Has it ever caused us to fall on our face? Or have we gotten to a place where we take the presence of God relatively casually? Is it something we've come to presume upon? Have we dealt with the presence of God casually? We learned in studying the tabernacle that now the presence of God dwells in the midst of his people, amongst his people, in his people, by his spirit. That we're the dwelling place of the presence of God here on earth. That he dwells in us by his spirit. But here's the thing, don't take that so casually. You you, you, You possess the presence of a holy God. Don't treat it lightly and don't treat it casually. This reality is to provoke a healthy reverence, a healthy fear, but as well, shouts of joy. Shouts of joy at his grace. Shouts of joy at his mercy. That's their launch service. That's their ordination. That's their first service, and the glory of the Lord appears. God comes to dwell in the midst of his people. It starts out well with a bang. It takes a really dark turn. You see it in the first part of chapter 10. We'll just mention it. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, priests amongst God, go and do what God had not commanded. And they took unauthorized fire and laid incense on it and offered it before the Lord. And God had, you see in verse one of chapter 10, God had not commanded them to do that. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them. And they died right there before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said, among those who draw near me, I will be sanctified. Before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. They offered a worship to God according to their desire and their preference and not according to God's instruction. And you see from the very beginning that the priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood, Aaron and his sons were gonna be inadequate. 
And you see through the history of Israel, none of Israel's priests ever lived up to the standard that God had given. In fact, it was due to the ministry of the priests, largely the people of God in Israel will see in their story, go into exile and go into slavery. But in 1 Samuel chapter two, God said this through his prophet Samuel, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. The shadow of the priesthood will give way to the reality. The shadow will go and behind we'll see what was casting that shadow. The shadow will give way to a much greater reality. And we know that when God gave Moses a pattern for this priestly system, he he didn't just make it up on the spot for the Jewish people. He was copying a blueprint or a pattern of a heavenly reality. And when God's people longed for a better priest, they longed for a more perfect and complete priest, God provided one in his son. Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Jesus came not just to fit into the system that God had ordained for the people of Israel, just to be the perfect and final human priest. He came and he fulfilled the entire system of which was simply a blueprint of what was in heaven. Jesus came to fulfill this system so that our focus would no longer be on the externals of the system, but on him himself and him ministering in our place right now at the right hand of God for all of eternity. Just look at this, Hebrews chapter seven. I just wanna read some of this for you as we close. Hebrews chapter seven, it says in verse 26, it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. No other priest in the history of Israel could ever say that. They were sinful just like you and I, but not Jesus. He was tempted in every way as you and I are, but he never yielded to the temptation of sin. Verse 27 says, he has no need like the other high priest to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Every single priest had sins of their own that they had to offer up sacrifices for. We saw Aaron had to do this for seven days and on the first day of worship he still had to offer more sacrifices for his own sin. And never in a million years did any priest in the history of Israel ever think that they could be the sacrifice for the sins of other people. But Jesus changed every single thing about that. He needed no sacrifice for himself, yet he became a sacrifice in our place. He didn't need the sacrifice. But for our sins, he became the sacrifice. And his sacrifice, the writer of Hebrews says, was once for all. Once for all. This makes Jesus the center of the history of God's grace with his people. It means that everything God did before Jesus in the past, all these sacrifices you're looking at, everything God did in the past, he did on the basis of the forgiveness that would come from his son Jesus. And everything that God will do forward looks back on God's grace and the sacrifice of his son Jesus. It makes Jesus the center of the history of grace and everything that God does and has done and continues to do is about his grace that he's shown in his son Jesus. This is what the writer of Hebrews is trying to say that God was pointing the people to back with this Old Testament priesthood. Verse 28 says, for the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who's been made perfect forever. The point is this. We have such a high priest, one who's seated at the right hand on the throne of majesty in heaven. No Old Testament priest could ever say that. Jesus deals at the right hand of God in heaven right now where he rules and reigns. He has a place of honor all for himself right behind God, right next to God. He is loved perfectly and indefinitely by God and he's constantly with God. 
verse two says he's a minister in the holy places. In the true tent, the Lord set up, not man. Not only that, he's not ministering in the earthly tabernacle that was eaten by moths and ruined by sun and put up by people and taken down by people. He's in the tabernacle that was built by God. He's in the perfect place that God had established. In verse 23 says, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Every priest died and every priest had to be replaced. Jesus is alive. And his ministry as high priest did not just happen when he was here on earth. His ministry as our great high priest happens even right now. We have a better and more perfect, a greater high priest, Jesus, who came into the world as the son of God, who lived a sinless life in our place, who offered himself as our perfect sacrifice for our sins, who rose to an everlasting and eternal life by the spirit of God, who is now seated at the right hand of God in majesty and glory. And there the writer of Hebrews says he loves, he loves us and he prays for us and he bids us to draw near to God through him. He didn't come to fit into a system. He came to fulfill it and end it. And so the writer of Hebrews says this, and this is how we'll end. I know I've gone too long. Verse 25 says, consequently, because he is a greater high priest, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Be a Christian is not merely to have Jesus as an example to follow. I know we're fond of presenting him that way. It's to have Jesus as your great high priest interceding on your behalf before a holy God. It's to have Jesus as your mediator to intervene for you in what apart from him would be an otherwise hopeless situation and circumstance for you because of your sin. It's to have Jesus as an advocate, a constant advocate in the presence of God, reminding the Father and calling out to the Father not to treat you as you deserve, but to treat you as he has earned. This is what it means to be a Christian. And so I just ask you this as we close. Do you need to humbly acknowledge your need for this priest? You can have all the suspicion you wanna have about religious systems and religious establishments and what priests mean to you and what images you have in your mind, but you simply cannot ignore your desperate need for this priest. Do you need to humbly acknowledge your need for this priest? Let me pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you, thank you for your fulfillment of your word, your perfect fulfillment in your son Jesus. I ask that he be honored, he be glorified, he be trusted deeply with all that we are by every person in here that you would call every heart here to place perfect trust, full trust in your son Jesus. We ask this, Lord, for your glory and our joy. Amen.